Welcome to the Christchurch Manchester Theology Podcast. The CCM School of Theology meets monthly on Saturday mornings at Luther King House in Manchester. For more information about the training that we offer or about our church in Manchester, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. My home is not on this not in this world. On Saturday 17th of March, Greg Wilson taught us about the character of God at the Christchurch Manchester School of Theology. Greg is on the leadership team at Grace Church Manchester and is planting a new congregation in the Chorlton area of Manchester. Let's take a listen to the session. Thank you very much. As they might say from the American South, well, you don't sound like you're from around here. Yeah, yeah I, I'm not British. I'm American. Don't hold it against me, especially uh, politically speaking in the moment. Um, but uh, I have the daunting task of we're going to discuss together the character of God a mere four or five chapters in a big, thick, systematic theology and what, an hour and some change. We'll, we'll get it all done. We'll figure it out. Um, yes, uh, I'm really excited to be here. And um, hey, happy to be able to study the word with you all. It's exciting stuff. If there are um, words I use or questions that you have that's like kind of unclear or I have no idea what he's talking about there, um, that is not your problem. That's my problem because I'm supposed to be teaching. So don't feel like it's your problem. Help me with my problem of my lack of clarity and just kind of shoot your hand up or just yell out, what does that mean or what is that word or whatever? Um, because if you're thinking it, probably lots of other people are thinking it too. But let's just, we're just going to get jump right in because um, there's lots of stuff to cover. This is what I'm assuming is going to happen. I'll spend a lot of time on the first little section and realize we have only a little amount of time and we'll have to like go through and list a whole bunch of things really quickly. But you have the notes and all the references is here, so whatever we miss, you can go back through. Um, we're going to be reading a lot of, jumping around to a lot of Bible verses and things, so um, maybe you're quick with your Bible or even quicker with your Bible app. That'll be helpful to just kind of have that ready. Um, first, the character of God. Why study it? What's the, what, why is it hopeful? Well, Mike already um, stole my Calvin quote. Um, that we can't know ourselves outside of knowing God. We also can't know God without knowing ourselves because how else are we going to know God unless we use our brains, which is knowing ourselves? Or how else are we going to know ourselves because God is the one who created us? It's a chicken and egg kind of thing. So to know ourselves, knowing God helps. Um, Also, just to understand God by itself without any other reason, without even having to answer that question why, is a worthy endeavor because God himself, as we learned and we will continue to learn, is the most majestic, beautiful, most good thing that could ever and will ever exist. So it by itself, what we're doing by itself, it actually don't really need another reason to do it, even though there are other reasons to do it. Um, another reason is if we are created in his image, then um, and we are called out from our small missions that occupy us, so kind of the small-mindedness, um, into God's larger mission, uh, mission, his big vision for the world, then that actually gives us a purpose in our lives. And so knowing who God is gives us a purpose. Because if we don't know who God is, because all the things that he does comes out of an overflow of his character, if we don't know who he is, then we're not going to really know who we are, and therefore we're also, we're also not going to know really why we're here and what we're doing here. So it gives us a purpose. And also it's just pure obedience. Part of the Great Commission, part of making disciples in the Great Commission was to teach people all that Jesus had taught us. And some of that is about who God is. So we should study the, the, um, the character of God for all these reasons. And there are lots of different ways of classifying these attributes of God that we're going to be talking about. Um, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on this because I just want to actually really kind of jump into it. But um, just for you to know, this is just kind of one method. Um, one is to do the same kind of thing that Mike did with Exodus, a transcendent, uh, aspects and qualities, so that the bigness and like the unapproachableness of God and those kind of characteristics, and the, or uh, and classify them on the other side of the imminence of God, the closeness that God has with us. Um, so that's one way to do it. Another way to do it is through um, this method that one of my professors at seminary, John Frame, likes to use through three lenses: one of control one of authority, and one of presence. So one of power, which is control, one of authority, which is rightness, one of presence of God with us. Now, we're not going to use any of those. <laughs> so just for you to know, there are lots of other ways of talking about this. We have this, I love Venn diagrams. So you have this little Venn diagram there on your, on your paper there. We're going to be looking at what theologians call incommunicable attributes 
and communicable attributes. And I say theologians because I am not one of them. I'm just pretending to be one today. Um, so first, uh, only God, the things that only God is are incommunicable. The, the kind of characteristics that only God has and nobody else does. The thing that makes him completely and utterly other. And then there's this little carryover of us being in God's image. Therefore, we have some of his characteristics in some kind of ways, although not the same way that God has them. And so those are communicable attributes, attributes that God has given to us and communicated through who we are. And then there's the stuff that's only us, like finite, created, sinful, all those kind of things that God is not part of at all. Um, so we're going to talk about those two, those two big things, incommunicable and communicable. So we're going to start first with that incommunicable thing, um, starting there with God's independence. The very I, I added like um, theologian kind of terms in here. If you want to seem really smart to your friends, like oh, you're talking about the aseity of God, are you? <laughs> um, so we can. Um, that, that's just another. Yeah, you might read that in some older systematic theologies. Um, this is uh, basically anything good that I'm saying here. I have stolen from the references that are on the end of this page here. So this is none of this is original material, which is good for you because. Yeah, these other guys are way smarter than me. Um, The way one uh, theologian has described God's independence is that God does not need us or the rest of creation for anything, yet we and the rest of creation can glorify him and bring him joy. So God doesn't need us, but we can still bring him joy. Um, I'm just going to throw out references, and the first person who can get there, could you please just kind of speak loudly enough for, for the rest of us to hear. Can someone um, read that Acts 17 reference and then someone else get the John 17 reference? And whenever you get there, just kind of uh, read it to the room, please. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Thanks. God is not needy. He's not needy at all. He, ha- he, he is completely independent and fine by himself and is completely happy to stay that way. Or is he? Uh, how about John 17? Can someone read that one? And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. So this is Jesus praying to God uh, in the high priestly prayer before uh, the passion narrative starts. Praying to God, saying, God the Father, saying, And now, Father, glorify me, Jesus, in your presence with the glory I had before you, before, with you before the world began. So there's this glory that the Father and the Son and the Spirit, we're not going to take time to look at the whole Trinitarian kind of thing, had before the world even started. There's a glory they were able to share together. Um, Daniel 4.35 says, All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the powers of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, What have you done? He is completely independent, completely perfect in himself. He's independent, as you, as you see here, in his existence, in his very being. Um, unlike us, like we're dependent, we have to eat, we have to drink. Um, he's independent completely in his thought and how he thinks about things and how he goes about his will. And he's independent in, in his actions, how he enacts his will in the world. Um, and then uh, Genesis 3.14, Mike set that one up really well. God um, telling Moses, this is my name. I am, or I will be what I will be, as in contrast to us. That's not us. That's not our name. So the big question is, um, if God doesn't need us, then like, what's our deal? Like, are, are, are we uh, just kind of just useless pawns in his little chess game of history, or, or what, what's going on here? Um, can someone please read the book that you read very often for personal devotions, Zephaniah 3.17? <laughs> that one's for someone with a Bible app, because you could just type it in. You don't have to like, figure out where it is in your Bible. Um, the Lord your God is with you. The mighty warrior who saying, he will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with yeah, Thanks. God rejoices over us with singing. So, it's actually really good news for us that God didn't create us out of a need because he created us out of the pure overflow of his love and of his joy and just wanting to show that love and that joy and all this glory we're going to talk about today to a creation. So because we haven't been created out of a lack of our need, um, we've been created out of generosity. 
That's what we are the product of, God's generosity. So that's really great news that God is not in need. And also in Hebrews 2 um, that you have here, uh, it says, uh, applied to Jesus, it says, He is singing over you when you are in the congregation. Like, so when we meet together, even right now together as God's people, Jesus is singing his praises over us, just as Zephaniah talks about. That's amazing. Who really thinks they're worthy enough in themselves that the God of heaven and earth is singing over us now? I don't think I deserve that. But God says, you do. You are my creation, and I am going to show you how good I am. I, that's just kind of mind-boggling. Let's just stop there. And, okay, just keep going. Um, yeah, so, uh, so that is his independence. Um, let's look at his, him being unchangeable. Again, a theologian word, immutability. Um, God is not mutated, not changeable. Um, Psalm uh, 102, 25 to 27, I'm just going to read that, says, In the beginning you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like clothing, you will change them, and they will be discarded. But you remain the same, and your years will never end. So God isn't fickle. He doesn't have mood swings. He doesn't change with fashion like the clothes. He doesn't lie or change his mind. He says what he's going to do, and he sticks to it, and he doesn't change. And as I wrote there in the notes, this is applied to Christ himself in Hebrews 1. So Jesus being God, also it's the same, same deal for him. Now, this doesn't mean that uh, God isn't active. This doesn't mean that he's not relational. Um, he being God, because he is God, can be relational and constantly active, as well as never changing. And it's actually um, his unchangeability that we count on. It's actually really good that he doesn't change, because what if he doesn't love me tomorrow? Well, God doesn't promise that. God promises he's going to love his children no matter what we do. And as we are always changing, and our world is always changing, what a wonderful thing to be able to count on. There is something stable in this world. I mean, how many, I think maybe few of us have a little bit of anxiety somewhere in some parts of our lives, if not all of them, right? God himself is unchanging, so we don't have to be anxious, because we get to stand on his foundation instead of all the other foundations that we chase after and end up enslaving us, as we read. So um, some aspects of his um, unchangeableness is uh, this kind of uh, compound word, long-suffering. I, the Lord, do not change. This is good news for the descendants of Jacob. So you, descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. So God's unchangeableness means he does not destroy us. Thank you, Lord, for that. And also in his goodness to us, there in James 1.17, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. So every good gift comes from him, and he doesn't change in how he gives them out. There's a, um, an old uh, Dutch theologian, he's long since dead, named Herman Bavink, um, that has this great quote. The doctrine of God's immutability is of the highest significance for religion. The contrast between being and becoming marks the difference between the creator and the creature. Every creature is continually becoming. It is changeable, constantly striving, seeks rest and satisfaction, and finds this rest in God and Him alone, for He, for only He is pure being and no becoming. Hence in Scripture, God is often called the rock. And again, I am who I am is this like unchangeableness. I'm, I am, this is who I am and always will be. But what about what Scripture says God repented or was sorry? Um, can you guys think of any situations in Scripture where that's come up off the top of your head? Yeah, he said that he was sorry that he created mankind. Yep, sorry he created mankind after, after the flood, or, or right before the flood. What else? Nineveh. Yeah, with Nineveh, yep. Of um, God promising Nineveh's going to be destroyed, and he doesn't destroy them. He relents from judgment. Um, he's also, God was sorry that he made Saul king. Um, that was just something like, God's like, oh, Saul, he's going to be a great king. And like, oh, man, what, oh, what have I done? I made a huge mistake. Um, obviously not, because well, we'll talk about time in a bit. God has a different relationship to time than we do. Um, or even we talk about Exodus. When, when God is giving Moses the Ten Commandments, the people are already worshiping another idol. They already melted down their stuff that they got from Egypt, and they're always already bowing down to the idols that they knew in the land that they were just delivered from and just um, being freed from. And God said, I'm going to destroy these people. But then uh, Moses prays, and God decides not to. 
So what, what about when God changes his mind? Well, um, God responds differently in different situations. And uh, a situation of ongoing sinfulness, like say Nineveh, for example, is going to bring judgment. But if someone repents, there's forgiveness. So God said that he would send judgment, and that was a true declaration if the, state, if the situation would stay the same. But if the situation changes, then God himself is going to change in how he responds to it. Um, and, may, and this is a quote from how we can uh, view how God is sorry um, from, uh, from another guy who we'll get to in a second. Um, so sorry is an expression of God's present displeasure toward the sinfulness of man. In neither case is the language strong enough to require us to think that if God could start again and act differently, he would in fact not create man, or in fact would not make Saul king. It can instead imply that God's previous action led to events that in the short term caused him sorrow, but that nonetheless in the long term would ultimately achieve his good purposes. Now this is somewhat analogous to, um, to a human father who you know like your, your son is going to make a big mistake, but eventually hopefully he'll learn from it. He's going to touch the oven or whatever it is. He's going to get burned or it's get something hot is going to happen. He'll get hurt a little bit, but eventually he's going to learn from it. The father is not going to take pleasure in like the pain of their son. Um, but he knows in the long term, like this kind of discipline will be good for his son. And that's how, kind of, um, how we can look at sorry. Also, when the Bible talks about God being sorry, it's using human terms and human ways of understanding life to explain how God the infinite actually acts. So God's sorry is, isn't completely uh, equaling the way we are sorry for something. So if I'm sorry for something, it's because I made a mistake. That's not true for God because he doesn't make mistakes, because he tells us he doesn't make mistakes. So God's sorry is a very kind of different thing. It's, it's more of a um, talking about uh, the, mo- like the displeasure in the moment of humankind gone wrong, or Saul being a disobedient king. Because Saul started out all right, but things obviously didn't work out very well. Um, the word for that is anthropomorphism, basically. And I don't know if you guys have heard that before. It's just um, uh, a way of God uh, describing God's actions in human terms. Does that make sense? Yeah. Are there any questions about that? That's a massive question. That is like books and books and books have been written on what we just talked about in like, you know, five minutes. Um, so if you have, you probably should have more questions. Um, but if there is any other questions or whatever, yet, yeah, don't hesitate to throw them out. Does that mean there's an element of that that we should take from God to say uh, God can see bad things happening, can uh, struggle or whatever? but not want to fall to despair or change his mind. Jim, there's a human response to sorrow that's unhelpful, and maybe God's perspective can be, uh, you know, instead of us anthropomorphizing up to God, mm. to take God's reaction and his way of handling these bad situations that we should appropriate down from him instead. Yeah, so the question was like, um, basically, should we view hard times a bit from more God's perspective, then, yeah, I think that's a very helpful thing. It's not always very easy, or it's, sometimes it's not even very possible. Um, I think there's maybe two things. One, we ought to really feel the sorrow and the pain in the moment and be okay with that and say, like, I feel horrible. Or just as the Psalms kind of ask, God, where are you? Like, I thought you were here. Um, while at the same time, uh, without even really there being holding these things in tension, knowing that God is good, God has an eternal good plan in place, and we don't know it. Um, the great analogy of being able to see the underside of the tapestry instead of the actual like total thing. Yeah, those things are hard to do. But um, obviously, it would be the more we view the world from God's perspective, the better off we're going to be. Um, that's not always very easy to do, though. Um, yeah. So yeah, thanks for that. Um, yeah, it's it, it's a this is a very kind of hard topic um, because it deals with a lot of things, especially suffering. And this kind of goes into a conversation that we're not also not going to spend a whole lot of time on. And does God have emotions, or, or what kind of emotions does God have? That's um, impassibility is this uh, doctrinal term of. Um, Impassibility is a term that God does not have emotions at all, like the impassibility of God. Now, I think God does have emotions because of the way the Bible talks about them, but in what way does he have emotions? Clearly not the same way that we experience emotions. God gets angry, um, but not in the same way we get angry. Even if we have the most complete righteous anger, we know we're always going to be tinged with, with sin because we're not perfect. 
Um, or if God is happy and God says something is very good, that's different from the way that we even experience happiness and goodness because, again, we're, we're finite and we're incomplete in ourselves. And so um, there's in the theology world, there's this kind of big debate of does God have emotions or does he not? If he does, has emo- if he does like what, how does he experience those things? Um, I think what people often want to affirm on either side of the debate is that God has passions, God has emotions, God has uh, very strong desires, but is not subject to them in the way that we are. We wake up in the morning and we're like, oh, I'm just depressed and it's really hard to get out of it. Or, oh, I'm super happy and now the world is completely optimistic and everything is great. Um, if you're American, especially. Uh, so, um, but, uh, but God, unlike us, um, is not subject to his own passions. God is in complete control of his passions, in complete control of his emotions. Yeah. You know, when, I don't know whether it's Ezekiel or Isaiah, I can't remember, where God says, and it broke my heart when I read it, that he wished, it, I'd hoped they'd call me father. Hmm. Now, that's like he's grieving, isn't it? Hmm. So that's an emotion, isn't it? Yeah. It's God's desire it's for all mankind to be saved. Sometimes we'll be grieving, but we don't. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, I mean, the way, especially in the prophets, the way that Israel, like, broke God's heart is, like, very emotive and very um, active in the way that he responds. Yeah, there's, I think there's all sorts of evidence for God's emotions in Scripture, um, as long as we affirm that uh, he's not kind of, like, working out of um, envy and being like, oh, well, I'm going to get them now because I'm really angry with them. Because in the same way that we would want to get back at somebody because we're angry with someone. So his anger's pure. Yeah, which is something that we've never experienced and can kind of only talk about. And, and his sorrow would be pure as well. Yeah. Because yeah. it's not, often if we have a sorrow for something, there's a part of it, um, like say your, your child disowns you or something, um, that is really sorrowful in itself. But it's also, there will also be a part where we're like, I feel like I deserve to be loved and I need that, that child to love me, which is also not a really like, godlike quality as well. So it, it's really hard to talk about this. Again, we're talking, all these things we're talking about on the incommunicable thing is stuff that we have not experienced ever. And so it's really kind of theoretical and, and hard to kind of wrap our minds around, which really ought to lead us to humility. Be like, well, Scripture does tell us a lot of things about God, ultimately. Um, and what it also tells us is we're never going to completely understand him. And some of these things, I'm just kind of like very fine with being like, he has passions, he's not ruled by them, I don't get it, and that's because I'm human. So, yeah. yeah. Now we do have, but yet we do have a high priest who can sympathize with our weakness, who is interceding mm. to God on our behalf, because mm-hmm. he was very much like us, with all of our emotions and all of our passions and all of our temptations that he was faced with. And so he is able to speak to the Father about the human emotion. And um, just as Christ declared to us the Father's emotion, because he could understand both sides. Mm -hmm. Um, Because otherwise we'd be like Job, just crying out, if only there was someone. Yeah, yeah. So I think there's like thoughts on impassibilities. Yeah, there is someone that does um, understand both sides of the coin. Yeah, um, but that isn't us. Yeah, and and even that, even with Jesus, I mean, think like the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, that sounds like a very anxious and angst-ridden um, kind of situation, but still at the same time. Jesus wasn't like ruled by those emotions that he felt, and he was obviously very sorrowful, asking, knowing the answer, still asking the Father to take the cup away from him. Because he saw he saw wrath in the way that God sees wrath versus the way we see wrath, which is why it was so intense. Yeah, because he could see it from the Father's eyes. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Sorry, we have to keep going. I feel like any one of these topics is like, let's just camp out on this. Um, all right, let's, uh, let's move to eternality. Um, so God is eternal in time and in space. We could say infinite. You could say all sorts of other words there. Um, time-wise, he is uh, timeless in himself. Um, can someone read Psalms 90, 
two, please. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever, forever you have filled the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Thank you. Yeah, from everlasting to everlasting. So it's like um, from the beginning of before time to the beginning till after time exists. Um, God is, you are God. And then um, Job uh, 36 is, how great is God beyond our understanding as we're figuring out as we're going through these? Um, the number of his years is past finding out. You can't even try and figure it out. It's, just not, it's like beyond comprehension, his years. So he's timeless in himself and he sees all time, all the time. If that makes sense? Um, Psalm 94 says, a thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by or like a watch of the night. Um, so it's basically like he can remember, just as you remember yesterday, all the things, what you ate for lunch. Um, God remembers what happened eons ago, just like it was yesterday. Um, and if God is infinite and timeless in some ways, that means that he not only experiences kind of all time as the present, but can also spend an eternity in one moment as well. Because he's, like, time is something out that he created. Time is something outside his creation. That boggles my mind. I don't know if you think, like, first of all, talking about time is crazy anyway. But God can infinitely inhabit one single moment with his whole being, as well as be at all points at, that ever, of every time that has ever exists with his entire being as well. What does that mean? I don't know. It's infinite. <laughs> um, yeah, let's go to, um, uh, let's see. Basically, yeah, there, there is... As we experience the present, so we're always experiencing the present, that's what God experiences of all time, all the time. It's all like the present to him. It's, it's not like he has to recall something. Oh, yeah, I remember that thing a long time ago. Um, and then trying to remember, oh, what was that name again? Like, it's just, it's, 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 all, it's all there. Um, Isaiah 46, 9 through 10 says, Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please. So God is Lord, even of time itself. So he's eternal in time. He's also eternal in space. Uh, There's a great... um, uh, theological word, which is immensity. He has infinite immensity. Um, sounds like he needs to go on a diet or something. The, uh, this quote from, uh, from uh, Louis Burkhoff says, that perfection, uh, describing space, God being eternal in space, um, that perfection of the divine being by which he transcends all spatial limitations and yet is present in every point of space with his whole being. So there's a negative side, denying all limitations of space to God, and asserting the positive side that God is above space and fills every part of it, not just parts of him in every part of it, his entirety in every single part of it. Again, it's kind of really hard to imagine. So negatively, God can't be contained. You can't contain God. And positively, he's everywhere. All of him is everywhere, all the time. Can someone um, read uh, 1 Kings 8.27, please? Even the heavens and earth can't contain God. That's basically all that we know that exists. That can't contain God. Isaiah 66 says, This is what the Lord says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? Where will my resting place be? There can't be one in this world that we know. So he um, is everywhere. He's also in everywhere, which is another way of saying God's omnipresent. He's present in all places. Isaiah, or sorry, uh, Psalms 39, 7 through 10 says, um, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I, make, if I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise in the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. As Jonah found out, um, you can't run away from God. You can't hide from him. He is there all the time. Now that 
could be very scary and very comforting at the same time, depending on where you stand with this all um, massive, all omnipresent kind of God. So let's um, let's look at unity. Um, uh, what we're trying to look at here is that God is not divided into parts, that he is unified. There's not like a loving part of him, a wrathful part of him, a happy-go-lucky part of him, and a really kind of angry kind of part of him. Um, he's actually one cohesive whole. Unlike us, he doesn't have conflicted desires within him. Um, he doesn't have a conflicted will within himself. Um, we live conflicted lives. God is purely one, and all his parts are one. And also, he is not a collection of attributes. It's not like we could just list all these and be like, ah, here's God. He's a list of all these things. Um, he, he is just, there is there a oneness and in unity to his whole. So he's not 50% love, 5% wrath, 25% wisdom. He's infinitely everything and infinitely perfect in everything. Um, so, for example, um, do I have this on there? Uh, well, in... Um, 1 John 1, 1.5 and 4.8, we, we read these two things. This is, the, this is 1 John um, 1.5. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light, in him there's no darkness at all. Okay, so we read God is light, and then just a few chapters later in 1 John 4.8, we said, whoever does, not know God, uh, whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. So God is light, God is love. Well, what, what percentage of God is light? And then what percent of God is love? Like, well, he's infinitely perfect amount of light, infinitely perfect amount of love, and actually cohesive in light and love and all the other things. And this is why um, that Deuteronomy 6, 4 thing uh, here is, is really important. This is God kind of describing himself, said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He is unified within himself. He's also unique. That's a uniqueness. He's singular. There's no one like him. He's whole. He's perfect. <laughs> 1 Corinthians 8, 6 says, Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and from whom we live, and there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. There's this kind of unity to God that we don't have because we're conflicted and we have a lot of different parts and we have a lot of empty and blank spaces as well as too much stuff that we ought not to have. So um, that is the incommunicable, um, those incommunicable traits there. Any questions on any of those before we go to the communicable stuff. Yeah. So on omnipresence, so God's presence in hell. Yeah, good question. I think, um, I, I think that's massively mysterious. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> a nice way to say it. I don't know. No, I think, um, I mean... Hell is described as complete separation from God, and yet he's still king over it. What does that mean? I think that, yeah, so the separation may be just outside of his grace and magnificence, mm-hmm. but not outside of his presence. Um, and not outside of some other things we'll talk yeah. about, too, yeah. Yeah, so if he, okay. But he is present. He is... That he's, it's not outside of his presence, hell, if, if this is. Yeah, in some way, I have to say, is there any place where God isn't? Like, how could there be? Yeah. Um, it's almost like, is there any Something place. Something created then outside of his. Yeah. Yeah, he's yeah like, or, or um, it's almost like the question of, like, can God create a rock too big that he can't lift it? Um, yeah. Like, that's a dumb question. That's why. Hell exists for people who ask questions like that. No, but um, yeah, <laughs> as as Luther said, I'm, it's Luther's problem. Um, no, the uh, yeah, I, I I don't really know exactly how that works. Um, outside of it being um, unmitigated wrath and judgment eternally. So yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, can we even think? Is there possibly for there to be a place where God isn't like? But yet there's a separation. Yeah. But is that not what the definition of hell is? Is where God isn't? Like separation from God? Is that not? Yeah, but if he's not there, then does he not have control and power over it anymore? Well, I, don't, I don't actually don't think we have a whole lot of um, scriptural material to help us answer that question. But I, it, yeah. I, uh, John 3.36 3, talks about how God's relationship with people in hell 
So there is a relationship there in terms of like his eternal wrath mm -hmm. um, on those eternally present mm -hmm. in hell. So that would indicate some some sort of um, presence, I think. But yeah, again, they're separate. So it's the separation of of a. Um, so they're not separated from his presence, but are they separated from his from enjoying the new heavens and the earth? That, yeah. Yeah. If he's everywhere, then he, he must be present in, in hell. In in yeah. I'm not I'm oh, yeah. I'm not really sure. It's a really good question. Oh, how can he? Is he separate? Yeah. Just a question. We'll yeah. If he's everywhere, is he in hell? That's yeah. A, that's the question. Very good question. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Any other hard questions like that one? Yeah. Just on that, would, I mean, I don't know, but would it be reasonable to say that God, if you could, God could remove himself, his presence from hell, so he wasn't, so you wouldn't have the problem with a perfect God being in somewhere that, like, is hell, um, but could God still have the power to say hell won't, as um, Jesus says to Peter, the hell will not prevail against it. So almost like if you had a large kingdom um, that had power over a barbarian camp, the, the kingdom wouldn't send like their king into the barbarian camp, so the king would be present there, but mm -hmm. the barbarian camp would know that the, king, that the kingdom is so powerful that they can't do anything against it. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think um, that could be a good metaphor in thinking about it. I think um, but to be clear, too, that hell is not something that just happened to be created. Like, God was happy to create it. And we'll talk about, I mean, that's offensive, right? It's offensive to all of us. We don't like wrath. We don't like discipline. Um, and that is actually, it was part of, it's a part of God's plan, in some ways, of, of Ill, not just because he had to, but also like it's an aspect of illustrating his glory. Um, and yeah, so yeah, I don't know. It's really hard. Um, if you know the answer, <laughs> let me know. Write a book. Yeah. You could uh, tour America forever. Um, all about hell. Um, yeah, no, that's, that's really good. Um, sorry, it was not an answer. But it's a good. It's a much better question than answer. <laughs> um, let's talk about the um, communicable attributes. Let's see. Uh, we'll start first with. So I have these in kind of headings. So we have being, intellect, morality, and I think I just labeled the other one others. <laughs> oh, activity and others. Um, so uh, these are attributes that we, in some way, reflect. So the problem or the. Um, uh, the struggle of talking about incommunicable attributes is we don't really have a reference point of, for any of those things. And so we're only talking about them really through like metaphors and like theoretical kind of ways. The problem with the communicable attributes is because we do experience them, we have a tendency to put our experience on how God actually acts and God, God works. So just know that either way, there's, it's not like because we have knowledge that we can understand what it's like for God to have knowledge. It's still the same problem because we are still I am not, and he is still I am. Still a massive, um, infinite difference between the created and the creator. But that said, um, let's jump into some of these. So spirituality. Um, so God, I just put spirituality because God is, is spirit. Um, there, uh, John 4, 24 says, um, it's talking about where to worship God and um, uh, Jesus answers, well, he gives him an answer and he says, because God is spirit. Um, we also find that God uh, is very concerned about how his people think of him and how his people um, represent him and image him, especially if it's like an image him in a false way. In um, Exodus 20, that is there is one of the commandments says, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in, in heaven above or on earth beneath, or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. So it, it, God is saying it's the image, or what it is that you worship, is actually very important. And then in um, 
1 Timothy 6, 15 through 16 says, um, kind of coming off of a couple of verses, says, God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and might forever. Amen. See, the problem with um, the commandment to image God was because God is unimageable. He's spirit. It's not like we can draw a picture of him and, or um, say, oh, this is God. And so um, to, to have some kind of thing and to be like, this is God, and then we get to worship it, that's the problem. Because God is one who no one has seen or can see. And God is spirit. Now, whatever it means for God to be spirit, because it's a very kind of weird thing. I mean, first of all, it means he doesn't have a body like us. Um, but whatever it means for God to have a spirit, it's a kind of existence that is unlike anything else in creation. Like Everything else in creation has some kind of material existence. God doesn't. It's a kind of existence that is far superior to ours. It's better because it's God. Um, outside matter it's outside i mean can you imagine how would you exist without the senses of your body i don't know but god does because he lives that way now the reason why i put this incommunicable instead of incommunicable because in some ways be like this sounds completely unlike my experience at all but for human beings god has given us a spirit and for those who are his children god has given us his spirit and he lives within us and so there is actually a crossover here um, especially for those who are his believers um, let's move on here to, uh, to intellect. So I broke them down here. We have knowledge, wisdom, and then truthfulness and faithfulness in one. Um, can someone look up 1 John 3.20? And I'm going to read Job 37.16. Um, Elihu in, um, in Job says that God is the one who is perfect in knowledge. So knowledge, God having knowledge means God fully knows himself. And everything else. So what was, what is, what will be, and like the possibilities of things don't, don't even happen. What could be? Um, and can someone read at 1 John 3.20, please? If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. Yep, God knows everything. Um, the quality of knowing everything is called omniscience. That's where that, that word comes from. And because God knows everything, he is said to be omniscient. Um, let's see what else we got to read here. Uh, how about, uh, well, 1 Corinthians 2, 10 through 11 says, For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. The Spirit searches even the depths of God. It's interesting. For what person knows a man's thoughts except the Spirit of the man which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. The only one who really knows who God is is God, is what that is saying. Um, now, um, does God forget? What about our sins? God says he's going to forget our sins, um, the way he describes them. Um, he promises to forget our sins. And that Isaiah passage there says, I will not remember your sins. Um, the way I think we ought to think about this for a God who knows everything and forgetting is kind of like an impossibility for him. Um, if we can say something is impossible for God, uh, is that God will never again let the knowledge of those sins that he knows full well better than we do he will never let the knowledge of those sins play a part in the way that he relates to us and the way that he relates to us we functionally like he's forgotten them but the really great news is he knows them in more depth and in in more atrocity uh, kind of level than we will ever know and yet he still relates to us as if it never happened so the fact that god doesn't forget really like doesn't actually really forget is just illustrates the beauty of the gospel all the more for us. The fact that he can function that way. I mean, how hard is it to forgive somebody? I mean, often it's like, well, forgive and forget and then move on. Um, but that's, like, impossible. We can never really forget, especially when something does somebody really, something really bad to us. But in, unlike us, because God is who he is, um, God can relate to us in a loving way. So God knows everything, um, and in wisdom, uh, God always makes the best choices. And this isn't just for the ends of where the world is going, but also in the means of how we get there. So the choices God makes of where um, all the kind of storylines go, and also how we decide to get there. Uh, scripture affirms God's wisdom in general in lots of places. He's called the only wise God in Romans 16.27. Job says that God is wise in heart in Job 9.4. And 
Job 12.13 says, With him, with God, are wisdom and might. He has counsel and understanding. And specifically in creation, um, God's wisdom is seen. Do you have Psalm 104.24? Yeah, can someone read Psalm 104.24, please? Surely someone with a Bible app already has it in front of them. Come on. Oh Lord, how manifold your works in wisdom have you made them all? The earth has your wisdom. In wisdom, he's made them all. There's a wisdom and it happened in creation. Um, as God created the universe, the universe was perfectly suited to give him the most glory both in the day-to-day stuff that kind of goes on and in the means, and also in the goals for which he created it, in the new heavens and earth that one day we'll get to. Um, yeah, so, and there's also wisdom and redemption. Uh, Christ himself is called the wisdom of God to those who are called in 1 Corinthians one uh, twenty-four, And others' foolishness, other people's foolishness, is also a reflection of God's wisdom and redemption. So God uses not only people who are wise or Christ who is wise to illustrate his wisdom, he also uses people's foolishness to illustrate his own wisdom. It's just like the crazy way that God makes everything kind of work back to him. Um, 1 Corinthians 1, 21, 27, and 29 says, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. The folly of what we preach to save those who believe. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So even the foolishness that we have in our preaching is to illustrate how God is the only wise one and showcased ultimately through the church to all. Ephesians 3.10 says, His intent, God's intent, was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Now, through the church, through what we do together as God's people gather together, the manifold wisdom of God is made known to spiritual beings, like above what we even see with our eyes. That means what we do on Sunday, what we do throughout the week, like, that's a, a massively important thing, through things that we will never actually see until we get to see new heavens and new earth, assuming. Um, people are not people, beings are looking in and are understanding the manifold wisdom of God through what he's doing in his people. That's amazing. All right, halfway point here. Um, let's just take a five-minute little break, grab some more coffee, or eat some more danishes, and we'll come back and power through the rest. It's going to feel like a list, I think, for the rest, but we'll try and get them all. Just more pages of lists and lists to go. Um, as we were just chatting about, it's kind of like... Um, being given a wonderful menu, talking through all the menu items just briefly, enough for me to like rip the menu out of your hand and not actually give you a meal. Um, so it will feel maybe somewhat empty because we don't have a lot of time to kind of ruminate over all these things. But, um, but that's something that you can do separately. You have, I mean, the, uh, the notes and yeah, all sorts of other things. Anyway, okay, let's go on to where we at. Truthfulness <clears throat> and faithfulness. Uh, so truthfulness and faithfulness. He is the true God. Uh, his knowledge and words are all true. And also, his knowledge and words are the final standard for truth. So not only is he true, but also being God, he is the standard for what true is. Uh, Jeremiah um, 10, 10 through 11 says, But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God, the eternal King. When he is angry, the earth trembles. The nations cannot endure his wrath. Tell them this. These gods who did not make the heavens and the earth will perish from the earth and from under the heavens. And then uh, Job thirty-seven sixteen. Do you know how the clouds hang poised, those wonders of him who has perfect knowledge? That perfect knowledge is a glorious kind of majestic thing, um, this truthfulness. And in, in his faithfulness is that God will always do what he says and will always fulfill what he promises. He's never going to come up short, and he's never going to just say something and not really follow through. Kind of like, oh, yeah, we should totally hang out sometime, and then walk away. Um, God doesn't do that. (laughs) That's right. I'll pray for you. Exactly. That's a great one. I will pray for you. Really? When? Um, Numbers uh, 23.19 says, God is not human that he should lie, not a human being that he should change his mind. Does he speak, speak and then not act? 
does he promise and not fulfill? And 2 Samuel 7.28, Sovereign Lord, you are God. Your covenant is trustworthy. How he relates to us, that's trustworthy. And you have promised these great things to your servant. That means we can rest on them. And notice how this like, connects with God not changing the way that we do as well. And he's unchangeable. And in the Old Testament, if you were a false prophet, um, basically if you prophesied something that ended up not being true or ended up not coming true, you would be stoned. You would be killed. Not because like, you couldn't be trusted or something. It was because you're making God out to be a liar. You're saying, God said this is going to happen, and it doesn't happen. You're saying that God is a liar. That's why you'd be put to death in the Old Testament. Um, So it's important for us, if we're going to put words in God's mouth, that it actually be God's words. Not that we're going to be stoning anyone to death anytime soon here, I don't think. Um, All right, so that's intellect. Let's move on to morality. Now, this is the biggest chunk, um, so we'll uh, feel like we're just going to run through these a little bit. Um, First is goodness from Jesus' lips. In order to kind of confound the people who are following him. No one is good except God alone. Who is saying this? God himself. Very interesting. All that God does is good. And God also is the final standard for good. Just like truthfulness. Everything he does is truthful. And he's also the final standard of truthfulness. Um, Can someone read uh, or or get uh, loaded up or turn to Psalm 145.9 for me? And this is uh, Psalm 105. For the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all the generations. So God himself is good and he's also good to everyone. Um, so if someone has Psalm 145, can you please read that? Yeah, thanks. So he's good to everybody. Compassion on all his creation. Um, the rain falls on the righteous and, the, and the, uh, those who aren't righteous. Um, God is also particularly good to his own children. On the next page, um, Psalms 84.11 and Romans 8.28. Romans 8.28, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. And Psalm 84.11, for the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. If we follow Jesus... Um, because Jesus made us clean, our walk is blameless. That means God does not withhold anything good from us. He's not, he doesn't have some kind of good little thing that if we just figure it out, he's going to give it to us. He is like lavish with his goodness towards us. Um, most specifically and amazingly by sending his own son to die on our behalf. That's how much he loves his children. That he would sacrifice his own son for his many sons and daughters. So God is good. God also is love. 1 John uh, 4.18, any guesses to what that verse might be? God is love? Yeah, right? Um, proves it in itself. Uh, there's that quote here from, from Burkhoff, who's a, one of the guys who wrote one of these systematic theologies. He said, He does not even withdraw his love completely from the sinner in his present sinful state, though the latter's sin is a complete abomination to him. Since God recognized, even in the sinner, his image bearer. So God has created us in his image. Even in someone who's completely rebellious in every possible way, there's still something about him that represents who God is to the world. And God loves that person. At the same time, he loves believers with a special love since he contemplates them as his spiritual children in Christ. It is to them that he communicates himself in the richest and fullest sense with all the fullness of his grace and mercy. John sixteen twenty seven says, No, the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I come from God. Or, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Or, see what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is because it doesn't know him. That is what we are. We are his children. That's amazing. And God loves his children better than any best father on earth could possibly be. All right, let's talk about uh, uh, mercy, grace, and patience. Grace, mercy, and patience. Um, now, where um, wrath and judgment and stuff might be offensive to our more like Western secularized minds, um, the idea of God being gracious and merciful and patient is somewhat offensive to people with Muslim backgrounds because that's the opposite kind of worldview they're coming from. But let's kind of get into it. Just knowing that 
Every aspect of God is offensive to people um, in all kinds of different ways. So let's talk about grace. Uh, grace um, can be given by God and man in Scripture. We find that man, man can give grace, God can give grace, um, and doesn't always necessarily imply that favor isn't deserved. But generally, though, grace, um, a good way to define it, is the free bestowal of kindness on one who at least has no claim on it. Giving kindness to someone who at least has no claim on it, especially for God giving his ultimate grace, is for one who deserves the complete opposite. Uh, Unmerited goodness, or the love of God to those who have forfeited it and are by nature under a sentence of condemnation. Um, Ephesians 1.6 says, to the praise, uh, kind of in this massive kind of um, doxological intro to Ephesians, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. God has freely given us his glorious grace because we are in Jesus. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Uh, Titus 2.11 says, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. So that's grace. God's mercy means that God's goodness um, towards those people who are in misery or in distress. Um, whereas grace means goodness to those who deserve only punishment or, or maybe don't have claim to it. Mercy is to those who are particularly in distress. And uh, mercy, uh, God is merciful to lots of people, not just those who are his own. Uh, Psalm 145.9, um, I think we've read this one already. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. He's a very merciful God. Obviously, specifically more to his children as well. Um, his patience means that God's goodness, um, uh, it's, it's God's goodness in withholding the punishment towards those who sin over a period of time. It's just that, because, I mean, when Adam and Eve sinned, um, you know, they, they didn't die, even though they spiritually did. But God could have completely wiped them out. And humanity could, that could have been the very short story of humanity. And God would have been good to do that. It would have been completely fine. But he didn't. He's patient. Um, 1 Peter 3.20 says, To those who were disobedient long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah, while the ark was being built, and it only a few people, eight and all, were saved through water. So even at like, the height of how horrible humanity it was, where God had to bring a flood to like, destroy almost every single human, um, God was patient in it. He, he didn't kind of bring his judgment immediately. It's a, very, it's a good thing, especially for our friends and our family um, who aren't believers yet. The fact that God is patient with them and hasn't destroyed them completely. is um, He's giving them time to repent, giving them space and availability for them to repent. Um, it's amazing he would be that. Ah, oh, it's a good question. I think, um, man, you guys have actually have really good questions. I think uh, it might be a different kind of mercy. So if God is merciful on all that he has made, um, there is a, a level of kind of blanket mercy that God might have for everybody. But for those who are particularly his own, he's going to have a special mercy because he has a special relationship with them. Kind of like the way Mike described um, like all the children's and the children's hospital wing um, Man, you want to be like merciful and, and gracious to all of them, but the one who is your child, or say you have three or four, or however many of the children in that ward, um, you're going to have a very kind of special relationship with them, and you're going to illustrate and show that mercy in kind of different ways. So it might be more intense. I don't know if it's more. Is it more? It might just be kind of different kind, different quality of mercy towards those who are his. Um, I could. Uh, I'm not. I can't really say I'm prepared right now to do that. Um, let me see. Uh, he saved us. Uh, let me see. Titus three four. Does that help us at all? The kindness of the love of God, our Savior, appeared. He saved us not because of righteousness, righteous things we've done, but because of His mercy. Well, if He saves us because of His mercy, and that's a product of His mercy. For those who are saved, that means they've already received a special outflowing of His mercy than people who aren't who haven't yet. Does that make sense? I say that in a way that makes sense? So if, if salvation is a product of mercy, if we just talk about that, if salvation is a product of mercy, for those who have experienced salvation, we have experienced mercy in a way that's different than those who aren't believers yet. And so that by itself um, would kind of show that there's a qualitative difference of mercy for everyone and mercy for some. Another way to maybe think about it, the way that theologians kind of break up uh, this kind of larger conversation is special grace and common grace. So the fact that 
um, people who aren't believers are able to have a, a family that's like doesn't have to be dysfunctional. There's an element of actually God being very gracious to them. That's a common grace. But there's a special grace that God has given by delivering them from their own sin and their own darkness that um, illustrates his grace um, not less, maybe not more, but like qualitatively very different. I don't know if that's helpful or if that just muddies waters at all. Yeah. It, it might be slightly off topic, but how does all that fit with the idea of predestination? Um, yeah, we brought it up. Sorry. That's fine. <laughs> I was just judged a lot for asking that question. Um, but it just it sounds a little bit kind of controversial to me in my head. Um, and I'm not it is. sure I've understood it. Yeah, how, it. How does all that fit together? Yeah, well, it is controversial, isn't it? Um, and yeah, well, uh, how about... Um, how, how can I tread this? Sorry. People are not going to like me either way. I don't care. Um, <laughs> no, I, I, think, um, I think it does go hand in hand. It might, be, it might be a little off topic, but I think it does go hand in hand. In that if God, we are going to get to God's freedom and his own will. If God chooses who he has mercy on, um, in some ways, that sounds like the predestination kind of election yeah. thing. Um, there's that, but then there's also we are also told. In, so we're told in Scripture God is completely sovereign over everything that happens and everything that will happen, every possibility that could happen that doesn't. Um, at the same time, in Scripture, we're also told we have responsibility to respond to repent, and if we don't, there are consequences. If we do, there are consequences. I think those two are like we think there's tension with that. The what, the Bible has those like right next to each other in verses and never tries to kind of undo any kind of tension or even says, this might be really hard to understand. It just says like, sorry, here it is. God's all powerful and we have responsibility. How those two work together, I don't know. Um, but I have to affirm that like scripture is true. Um, the way that J.I. Uh, Packer described it in a book was, if you, if you look, if you have two ropes that go down really deep into a well, and, um, no, no, sorry, it wasn't two ropes. It was you have one rope, and you put the rope all the way down, all the way down into a well, and you can't see the bottom of the well because it's completely dark. You have this one rope that comes out one side, goes down. Somehow down there it's connected, and it comes up on the other side. You see the two ropes at the top. You have no idea what's going on down there, but you know that somehow they're connected. Um, and there's no tension because it's just one rope. It's not like we have sovereignty versus responsibility. Um, but yet it feels like a tension, especially for us who pride our independence, who pride our own freedom. Um, that kind of gets thrown into the, into the loop as well. I don't know how it works out. I don't think scripture tells us exactly how it works out. But it's there. Yeah. So that's really hard. Sorry. No, it's good. It's really good. And we're actually just about... Out of time here. We have two minutes. Um, you have the rest of your. Um, we didn't get to all the bad ones like wrath. Oh my goodness. Um, or holiness. We, Mike took care of holiness pretty decently. Um, what I want to end on is glory. So let's go to the very last one. Somewhere around here. I know, you have to read Wrath on your own. Sorry. Not a good devotional reading. Um, because wrath is actually like a function of God's glory. It's not something we, can, we ought to be ashamed of, although it's something we ought to be wise in how we talk about and loving in how we talk about because we're not God. He is. Um, let me just end with this because I think, um, well, so glory is it's a weird thing to put in an attribute of God because it's not actually part of God. It's what precedes him it's like um uh the like is there a so the light that's on um the light that's shining from it like the shining part is the glory of the light it's not actually part of the light itself and yet god is often like glory is often described like one in one with who god is um so it's not actually part of god himself it's what surrounds him and what goes forth as he reveals himself specifically as he reveals himself in his, in this world glory surrounds him uh david Asks, who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. And we read in Psalm 104, O Lord, my God, you are great. You are clothed in honor and majesty. You who cover yourself with light as a garment. And in the New Testament, um, when the angel of the Lord appears to the shepherds, 
uh, talking about the birth. Uh, the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. God's glory was also evident at the transfiguration of Christ, when he, Christ kind of shows himself who he is to the disciples, and they still don't get it. Um, and then we find also in Revelation 21 that the hope in the heavenly city to come is that city has no need for the sun, has no need for the moon, has no need for any kind of lamp or light to shine in it, for it is the glory of God that is his light. And its lamp, its lamp is the light of a lamb. That's what our hope is as we look forward to it. And quite amazingly, God has made us to reflect his glory in who we are. We were created for glory. Romans 3 says we were created for glory. And we also were called to reflect it. And Paul tells us that even now in our Christian lives, we are all being changed um, into his likeness from one degree of glory to another. Save from our kind of small-minded, lame, lack of gloriousness to God's amazingly hugely majestic glory. That's what we're getting changed into as we follow Jesus together. Um, So with that, let me just pray. Lord, we thank you um, that you have saved us. You have given us all of this. uh, We just had a brief moment to look at this revelation of yourself to us, where we are left humble. We are left wanting to serve you more. We are left wanting to know you more. We are left knowing that we don't know as much about you as maybe we thought Um, Lord, you are mysterious and you are grand and also you are loving. You are simultaneously out there and too big for us to comprehend as well as inside living in us as we go about our our lives. We ask as we do the rest of our lives you called us to, um, as we join your church in its mission here in Manchester, we pray your glory would shine forth in our individual lives, in the lives of our churches, and Lord, would more come to faith in you, that more communities of light reflecting your glory come in Manchester now. Lord, we pray for that in the next five years, the next ten years, more churches to be planted, for more people to be changed from one type of glory to a whole new kind. We pray in your name. Amen. 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 Thanks, guys.